Food, in a sense, is at the heart of our lives. We order our days around it. Food is also at the heart of our Catholic faith. In the Eucharist, we eat Christ's flesh and drink Christ's blood. Join us today as we explore the connection between food and faith with Catholic writer Emily Stimson Chapman, the author of The Catholic Table, Finding Joy Where Food and Faith Meet. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And I'm joined in our, our studios here by our regular panelist, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology uh, here at Franciscan University, and Dr. Scott Hahn, who holds the Father Michael Scanlon Chair in Biblical Theology in the New Evangelization, and our very special guest, Emily Stimson Chapman. Uh, it is always a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, an award-winning author of books that include uh, These Beautiful Bones, which I think we've had on the show, and American, uh, The American Catholic Almanac, and the book we're gonna be talking about today, The Catholic Table, Finding Joy Where Food and Faith Meet, a contributing editor to our Sunday Visitor, the Franciscan Magazine. Uh, and you regularly blog about food, faith, hospitality, uh, and the Catholic home at thecatholictable.com. So welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be here. Yes, yes, and thank you for, for helping us out today. <laughs> well, the powers that be told me that Regis was no longer gonna talk to me if I didn't show up with food. So <laughs> I'm glad you yeah, so brought food. Do you mind if we finish fast so we can eat? That's I right, know, this that's is right. the abbreviated yeah. episode of Franciscan right, yeah. Presents. So, so we're gonna be talking about food and our faith today. So let's start with the culture. Um, when you look out, what, what do you think the attitude of our culture is about food? I. On one hand, I want to say it's schizophrenic because mm -hmm. there are so many different attitudes. There's people who are afraid of it. There's people who worship it. There's people who um, are very selective about what they eat. But I think if I were going to try and sum it all up, I would say we've made food into an idol. Yep. So whether we are afraid of that idol, whether we're worshiping that idol, whether we're projecting different issues we have, okay. fears, insecurities, wounds, and using food to deal with it, We've taken food and made it something other than what it's supposed to be. And it's, sort of, it's become it a false a god. We've put it up on a, on a pedestal. So what feeds that attitude, so to speak? <laughs> oh, that was clever. And you like I think it's different things. Uh, is it I, different people, or is it, is it the attitudes of culture in general? I think in part it's the culture. We've become such a busy culture. So mm. people are on the move. People are eating at their desks. They're eating in the car. They're not able to sit down as a family and eat anymore. They're not able to eat with friends. So food isn't able to do for people what it's always done. You know, right. Bring people together around a shared table and a shared meal. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think we're also, I hate to say this, we like to control our circumstances in this mm. culture. You know, mm -hmm. we want to be, it's one of the reasons we have helicopter parenting. Parents yeah. really want to make sure the kids don't get into trouble. And I think we want to make sure that everything that goes into our body we're very, is 
going to make us healthy and strong. And there's this idea if we get rid of pesticides, if we get rid of gluten, if we get rid of all of these different things that could possibly harm us, life will be great. We will be perfect. We'll live forever. So I think there's a real need to control. Yeah. And then, like I said, just a very scattered. This, this could be a legacy of our own culture. You know, and I put culture in quotes because I'm thinking of American society sort of being the amalgam of wave upon wave upon wave of immigrants. Mm. You know, legal and I illegal. I mean, the controversy that we have today is really an echo of what we've been seeing for two or three centuries. And when people leave their cultures, you know, they're on the move and they're trying to get settled and they might have neighborhoods, you know. But, you know, America is that kind of melting pot, but it's also based on factory more than family, cities more than country. Yeah. It's so interesting for me that when I go back to Germany, where my ancestors are from, or even England, but especially Italy, it's like food is small s sacramental. <laughs> I mean, and fast food is just an oxymoron. You know, you have to eat slowly or it's not worth doing, you know? And, and I think that's part of our legacy as a culture, that we're just on the move, whether we're immigrating or we're just kind of commuting. Uh, we're always just kind of grabbing things, as it were, and not really setting, settling down and enjoying what yeah. God made for us. I mean, here, here's a, a, a truism which I don't think anybody would object to. Uh, food is wonderful, uh, uh, and that's why it's so mystifying when people get so confused, or as you put it, schizophrenic mm -hmm. uh, about food. I mean, even as we speak, I'm drawn uh, almost <laughs> ineluctably to that food. I don't want to fetishize it anymore. I want to consume it. But why are people so bloody confused? I mean, some of your statistics are really scary. You mentioned something like 60 million bucks spent uh, uh, on ways to diet, to lose weight. Uh, that's very strange. And young people, girls especially, preferring death uh, to uh, a weight gain. Uh, I'd rather my parents died or I got cancer or we had a nuclear war. Or hit by a than, bus. Yeah, right. or, or that, I, that, that I should not be able to fit into this size eight dress or whatever uh, the, uh, the chic size is this season. That, that's really alarming. Why is it like that? It's alarming and it's fundamental. Uh, so it's one of those, there are a lot of problems in the world. And so whenever I would sit down to write the book, I think, Maybe I should be writing about Christian persecution in yeah. the Middle East. Maybe I should be focused on the election. But when you start seeing numbers like that, that there's a large segment of teenage girls who would rather be dead than be fat. Wow. The amount of money people spend, you're like, no, something is very sick at the heart of our culture. And it's not, it's not a small thing. It, it's something that people are starving themselves to death. People are binging themselves to death. People are turned in on themselves. And trying to, I, I mean, I, we'll talk about it more later in the show, I know, but I think that because we've lost a sense of what food really is, yeah, we've right. lost what we'll talk about, a Eucharistic, sacramental understanding of food, yeah. it's easy to make an idol out of food right. then, like whether it becomes a vacuum, a black but hole. Would you say that this is a first world problem? I mean, people uh, uh, in, in the teeming uh, uh, jungles of, of the Orient uh, are not struggling over a food fetish. No, they're not going on paleo diets. Right. <laughs> right. They're not choosing all those extra things. It, it's really a, a more complicated first world uh, problem. It is a first <laughs> world problem, but first world problems are still 
problems. That's right. I think yeah, they easy. tend to get exported. They get exported, and it's easy to dismiss them as first world problems. Yeah. But the devil, is, I always say the devil is an opportunist. He will yeah. use whatever you give him. So in Africa, he's maybe going to use a power-hungry, crazed dictator and a yeah. famine. Here, he's like, how about Jenny Craig and CrossFit? Right. You know, we'll elicit yeah. some vanity or gluttony. Or well, if he's in the details, he's also yeah. in the diet, right? Yeah. Yeah. The diet. And, and you yeah. have come up with a new category of, of uh, eating disorder, uh, orthorexia nervosa, when people get uh, really obsessed about eating healthy food. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's a kind that, of disturbance. Yeah. <laughs> Unhealthy, you trademarked that. I've trademarked that. I found that in the book. Do you, are there many people like that? There are. It's a growing number, and it's where... An anorexic who eats too many calories, you know, she's had a piece of birthday cake that day, yeah. will be consumed with guilt over that. Yeah. It's not just, oh, I shouldn't have had that cake. It's a real self-abuse yeah. that takes place. Yeah. That's what's happening with orthorexics. They, they ate a piece of Domino's pizza, or they had something that, was, had a, that wasn't organic, and guilt consumes Transgressive them. eating, yeah. You know, but you know, this sort of thing is sort of mirrored by the other appetite. You know, men, I suppose, do have problems with food, and women, I think, do also have problems with sex. But those two appetites constitute the source of such fundamental disorders in our society, especially for adolescent boys, but boys of all ages, and likewise, women, too. And I think technology is sort of at the root of it. I mean, that's yeah. sort of the common thread that runs throughout most of Western culture because you see what you're supposed to be every day on the screen of the television, the movie, the internet, whatever it is. And so it's always a kind of comparative assessment and you always lose, you know, yeah. because there's professional models or whatever. And, and I, I think the devil is in those details especially, but has been in the beginning. I mean, you go back to Genesis 2 and 3 and they ate the forbidden fruit and their eyes are opened. Conversely, in the New Covenant, he breaks the bread in Luke 24, and their eyes were opened to the resurrected Lord. And so God stoops down to us in the misery the devil has consigned us to and then raises us up precisely through eating, is as it you point out. Is it it's possible so that uh, if we unplugged the television set and, and maybe uh, said no to the industry we call Martha Stewart, uh, foodies would not exist, it would not be a problem, it would not be an issue. Mm. I mean, it isn't even necessary that we eat because God could have contrived our existence uh, differently. And why must food be so tasty? And yeah. why the variety, including beets? Uh, I, I have a great That's fondness a for beets. Yeah, no if if you salt it's them. Kimberly does too. Yes, yeah. I think it's and you overdose, I think, on bacon. I mean, describing it as sultry. I mean, is bacon really that appetizing? You should see the amazing. picture that I described. As, it, it, the bacon looked like it was it. doing kind of a sexy dance. Yeah. So, yeah. It was. But, that, but that's our, our culture has, mm -hmm. through Pinterest and all these other places, has, have, have, again, as you said, put food up on this great pedestal. And, 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 and there, are, there are so many things that are being lost uh, by our culture. What are they failing to see as we... You know, as they, they make the idols out of food, what are they failing to see with food? Because Regis, I think, is touching on that. Right. Well, I mean, food, you know, as Scott said, food has always been an opportunity for virtue or vice. Like, if you go through the scriptures, you're always going to see that. Food has always been an occasion for sin or for giving glory to God. So I think it's important to start looking at what food was meant to be. And we can see that in scriptures. We can see that in the church tradition, in the liturgy. We eat Christ's blood, we, or we eat Christ's bread body, we drink right. his blood. 
Um, food has a meaning that goes beyond right. nutrition. And so the deeper we delve into what food is supposed to be, right. what it has been, you know, when Scott was talking about cultures, in France, one person might be for same-sex marriage and the other person is against it, but they have a common culture of food that yeah, binds them right. and food <laughs> matters and how they right, eat right. and it, it gives meaning and purpose and order and structure to their days. So food helps give us a common culture, but it really also teaches us about God. Food teaches us about who we are. It mm -hmm. teaches about how God made us to be. It teaches us about how God wants us to be nourished. It teaches us about how much God loves us. Yeah. So the deeper we discover those lessons, the less we make right. an idol out of food. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm struck by uh, the disparity uh, between uh, the number of obese people uh, in, in the culture. I think you mentioned one in three. That, that's a pretty dismaying statistic. And yet the people you see on television are, are thin as toast. They look like a big pen. And that is regarded as somehow admirable. Why the disconnect? Because it strikes me as perverse. If I understood that, <laughs> I would be you a would have written a different woman. Book. I wouldn't be stressed about my house renovation. Uh, no, I think it's there is a disconnect that is dizzying and confusing. Uh, there was there's a statistic in the book that I talk about how the the average model is so much thinner than just the average woman, and that's not just in the United States where we tend to be heavier. That's around the rest around the world too. Uh, somehow, as we get bigger and bigger the ideal body size gets smaller and smaller. And that just feeds the schizophrenia because you can never measure up and you can't be airbrushed. The women on TV aren't as thin as the people in the magazines and they're just airbrushed away. Well, you know, if virtue is in the mean, then vice is in the extremes. And so the polarization makes sense precisely because people might just get fed up trying to strike that balance, that virtue of the mean. And so, you know, feasting or famine, you know, it, it really does capture the, uh, the schizophrenia that we have. And uh, I, I think it's probably truer for ladies than men, but at the same time, I think that uh, it's common. It's common to all. And even if men aren't as agonized over their waistline, their wives are usually agonizing over their triglycerides, <laughs> their blood pressure yeah. level. Yeah. And there's a, re there's a sickness in not treating food as it should be. So whether it's mental or physical, when you yeah. lose that balance, when you lose the virtue that's in the mean, life gets out of whack. Yeah. And that's where the devil, that's well, where the devil if, wants if, if you treat supper too seriously, then I, I think uh, it becomes uh, an idol. I mean, Charles Williams reminds us that when the means grow autonomous, they become deadly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this is what we're seeing in the culture. It, the great fuss that is made over food. Uh, we, why do we glorify the grub? It's just something that you have to eat. You can adorn it with nice silverware and maybe serve beets and bacon to appeal to every appetite. But for heaven's sake, it's just a meal. Yeah. What yet, counts are the people who convene to eat it. And yet, you know, for heaven's sake, the <laughs> supper of the lamb is the image of heaven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and so it seems like a, di a divine dysfunction as well as a human one. Right, and but God created it that way. Yeah, there was a design and an order to that. He's hardwired us for food. And, and I think part of it is because that is where we feel at home. Family is eating together. Mm -hmm. It's not just sharing the same parents, the same street right, address and right. phone number. It's the shared meal. You know, so that even when the kingdom of God is exemplified in scripture, it's the royal table 
where you really recognize yeah. that it's not just royalty, it's a royal family. And I think that's what strikes the chord in our heart and comes from the heart of God the Father. Mm -hmm. there, there's so much here. And in this book, you go through recipes, yeah. and saints, yeah. you go through food. I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful uh, laying out of the Catholic table. Um, stay with us for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. At the Last Supper, there were many elements there on the table. There were mixed herbs, there was lamb, but our Lord chose the very most basic elements to be representative of His body and blood, the bread and the wine. There were basic elements in Judaism at that time. Sustenance, signs of sustenance. The most simple people, peasants, used bread and wine. I mean, they lived on that. And so our Lord took the very basic, simple element of bread and wine to represent his body and his blood. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking about faith and food with Emily Stimson Chapman and her amazing book, uh, The Catholic Table. Uh, really, this is a beautiful, beautiful book, and it's great inside and out, much like you. Oh, uh, thank you, so, Mike. Um, so we've talked about a lot about our culture and where we've kind of gone off the rails. But how about you? Have you always had this view? I mean, this is a pretty deep uh, thoughts on some f some simple topics like food, but it's beautiful. But have you always had this view of food? I was like, you know, the Greek goddess spring fully formed. Oh, I already yeah, had that. Always in, in, I was I walking was around with my right. with my bottle too. Yes. No, I actually uh, struggled with eating disorders for a number of years from the time I was 19 until I was 25. So I was severely anorexic for a while, and then I struggled with binge eating, bulimia. Uh, and I, if you had told me that I would be writing books like this or that I would enjoy food like I do. I mean, I, I will eat that pumpkin bread after as soon as the powers that be Grandma give us the, the go ahead. You won't even have to go to confession. And I won't go That's to confession. Hard. No, it's, there's so much freedom now in how I eat. Mm. Um, but for years, I would have thought that was impossible. I lived in the prison of anorexia. That defined my world. That defined how I saw myself. It ordered my days. Um, it really was the prism through which I saw all of my existence. The prism and the prison. It was well, you, the prism you have some prison. really moving passages uh, yeah. about that, uh, which uh, evoke uh, one's sympathy, uh, and, and particularly uh, from people who, who can't imagine uh, a food aversion uh, as the one that you suffered from, you were in the grip of for six or seven years. Uh, it is quite poignant because you describe yourself as wanting to disappear somehow, to vaporize. Uh, go down the drain, uh, and that that is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, I, I think only grace uh, can move you away uh, from that impasse. Uh, uh, I mean, food can't do it. Uh, something else has to quicken the appetite, and I suspect that was uh, the route that that God took you along, right? Yeah, yeah it was, and it became you know it. 
when I talk about food being an idol, it was that for me. It was how I controlled my world. It was how I controlled my universe. It became the object onto which I projected my fears, my insecurities. It was a weapon. It was every bad thing that food could be, food was for me during those years. But God reached down into that yeah. and drew me to himself through that need and really through the Eucharist. You know, when yeah. I came back into the church, that did what therapy and reading right. and yeah. reason and all of my own efforts, you know, I am a very, you all know me well. <laughs> what I set out to do, I do. And I couldn't slightly get my- Slightly type A. Slightly type A, choleric, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I couldn't get myself out of that prison of eating disorders. That was not possible. And yeah. in that brokenness and weakness, I had to call on God. And when he gave himself to me in the Eucharist, mm. you know, that really was the healing yeah. that I needed. It, it's just so counterintuitive uh, uh, to me. I mean, that God would have to jumpstart this life of grace because your notions of nature were so messed up. I mean, now you believe matter matters, but back then it was something loathsome that you had to put as much distance uh, between yourself and it as possible, and that included yourself. You were so dissociated uh, from yourself. I mean, for most of us, it's a natural progression from nature to grace, from the wonders of food to the wonderment of, of the Eucharist. But for you, you required some extraordinary intervention. I mean, that's sort of like Paul on the way to Damascus. <laughs> Suddenly, here's a Big Mac, uh, and it changes your life. Uh, for you, it's Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I do think there is a pattern of, uh, a divine pattern here. You point to Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, and it really was all of that misspent energy you know, all of that zeal, like a rubber band pulled back in the wrong yeah. direction, yeah. and then you let go and it flies in the opposite direction. And I, I can't say that eating was for me that, but book binging has always been, you know. Yeah. And the, our Lord was saying, I can work with that, you know. <laughs> I'm just going to have Catholic books, you know, end up in his hands. And as a result, you know, my binging became a redemptive mechanism also, you know. So I can relate. But I would also say this, that I've had loved ones who have been anorexic and bulimic. And I tell you, the helplessness that they feel yeah. is mirrored in the helplessness that you feel because there is no logic, there's no argument, there's no persuasion. I mean, this thing is so sub-rational. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, it breaks the heart. You know, and it really also just draws people in the family and in the extended family so that you're like, what can we do? And what you do, ironically, is you fast and you pray. And I think, in a, in a way, that, that proved to be, in cases that I've had, you know, powerful. But it's always, it's always the case that people who come through it end up discovering grace in food. Yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah. And, and I think about just the, the story is common. You, you, you know, in, in some ways you're obviously a unique, wonderful individual, but there are so many who struggle with many different versions um, of that, that the, the idolizing, the, the counting the calories, the, the non-GMO, the this, the that. I mean, you kind of share that throughout the book, uh, but you, you draw on the church's wisdom, you draw on the wisdom of the ages, but you also draw on your own passion. I mean, that comes through in the book very clearly, just where you have been, that, that kind of conversion of experience, but then you, you, you see and you're drawing us in to see with new eyes, um, you know, really a world around us uh, that is really captivated by a sacramental worldview. Um, you know, what, what is this sacramental worldview and what does that have to do with food? Well, th that's really how 
I was able to understand what the Eucharist was and come to, you know, receive the healing God gave me through it. But before that, you know, I had been a Protestant sort of-ish for <laughs> six yes, years, yes. <laughs> hung out with Protestants. I had a very Protestant theology. I still like to go to mass because Catholics knew how to pray. Um, but I started reading uh, when I was 25, a lot of Catholic books. Mm. And I was reading uh, books that were showing me that the world matter matters. God created matter. God created everything in the world. Everything in the world reflects God. Everything in the world says something about God. Everything in the world is loved by God. Like it exists because he sustains it in existence. There's a great quote that I pulled from this wonderful Episcopalian priest who's quite the cook in there, where he talks about God loves onions. Like onions <laughs> exist because yes. God loves them. They yes. delight him. Yes. Like yeah. if he, yeah. they, they stopped delighting him, yeah. we would have no onions. That's right. Uh, so seeing this world where matter was infused with grace, where it was always speaking about God, where my body, where the pumpkin bread, you know, everything in creation has some beautiful witness to give. That is what opened me up to really saying, oh, mm -hmm. like all of food, you know, food, what food is, is pointed to something more mm. than just calories and nutrition. And, you know, people will say food shouldn't be a reward. Food's just food. Right. God didn't want food to be a reward. It wouldn't taste so good. <laughs> like, <laughs> God wants us to love food. He yeah. wants us to rejoice because he loves food. He made it taste good. And so once I started seeing that food was more than just calories and vitamins and minerals, but a sign of something greater, that's when I really stopped fearing yeah. food, stopped making of an idol, and started thinking with the church on these questions. But well, how do we cope with people uh, who suffer from these disorders, but don't see the world through the prism of, of sacrament? I mean, they would find Babette's feast abhorrent, uh, you know, a waste of energy and time and good food. I'm, I'm talking about people who would rather be thin than clever, or bright, or wise, or virtuous, or even alive. Uh, for whom the waistline uh, is the only thing that matters. How do you reach people like that? Because it's not really the only thing that matters to them. Like uh -huh. deep down, they do not feel good. They don't feel yeah. worthy enough. They don't feel loved. The first and most primary way you reach out to those people is you love them. You know, the people you've known who struggled with eating disorders. Having someone who's praying for them, someone who is there, someone who's showing them that they matter, like yeah. that's the first step. And then I think it's contact with grace. So it's helping them to start to see the world differently. Maybe they're not gonna wanna read um, Frank Sheed like I did, but maybe it's a book like this, or These Beautiful yeah. Bones where I talk about, it's helping them to see there's more to the world. And ultimately I think it's the Eucharist. I do not believe I would have been healed to the extent that I have been if I had not been going to daily mass, yeah. if I had not been going to adoration. I, that's my first word of advice I've, I've had several anorexics actually come to live with me and they have to follow my food rules and they have to yeah. sort of just live a certain way. And it's amazing how these ideas sink deep yeah. down, but yeah. sitting in front of the Eucharist is the most important yeah. thing. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of, a, of an exchange that a, a skeptic had with Pascal. He said, look, Blaze, I'm losing my faith. What, what the hell can I do? And Pascal said, give alms. Do the things that pious Catholics do and see if the habit of, of piety doesn't come back. So maybe you have to just sort of accustom people to a sane lifestyle like 
Frank Sheet's book, Theology and Sanity, and wait and see if grace doesn't somehow light fire. Yeah. It is. It's, I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about it. You know, sometimes the easiest way to become virtuous is just to act virtuously. Yeah, just do it. Pretend. <laughs> just do it. And so when I realized intellectual, not everyone is going to have an intellectual, yeah. you know, enlightened moment like I had receiving the Eucharist yeah. and going, oh my gosh, God gives his body to me. He's feeding me. I, I need to yeah. rethink this food thing. Um, but when you're just eating what's put before you, when you're following, you're not saying, okay, someone has served me this, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to right. not take second helpings if I struggle with binge eating. You just follow your set of rules. Yeah. And in time that can help reorder the way that you're thinking and feeling. But ultimately you need Christ to do it too. It's right. not just rules. And, and we are given these things. We talked about it earlier, how we all have the same, whether we agree ideologically or religiously, we have something common that we all need food. We have a common table that we, are joined at. And so that there are so many things that you draw on that are just needs. But as we look at food, it, what does it tell us about God? Because as we're talking about the sacramental worldview, food tells us a lot about God. You kind of already alluded to this, but what, what more does it show us? Uh, well, it tells us He's good. You know, in every delicious grape, in every coffee bean, <laughs> right, right, there's yeah. a sign of God's goodness. And Scripture, St. Paul talks about that. And he's like, you know, if you all weren't so clueless, you just know that God was good and God was loved through the the wheat that's growing and the wine that's flowing. Like it's there's, that's a very Catholic paraphrase of the Bible. But, <laughs> but they, Paul does talk, these things were made known through nature. Like God is good. Like that's what the, the onions and the chocolate tell us. I mean, and the diversity of all of it. And the diversity of it. And it also tells us how much God loves us. Right. I always, you know, God didn't have to make bacon. He didn't have to make it taste so That's because so he good. loves us so God much. God loves us so much, and he yeah. made the pig such a magical little animal. You know, <laughs> you know from Paul, such a thing comes something so glorious. I know. How could God be anything right. other than love? In uh, Acts 16, Paul meets up with his companion named Luke, and he writes the rest of Acts with we. It's the second, first person plural. So Paul's companion and protege, Luke, ends up writing more of the New Testament than anybody with the Gospel as well as Acts. But in the Gospel, he shares with Matthew, Mark, and John a lot of meal scenes. Well, actually three. But then Luke adds seven additional meal scenes that you don't find in Mark or Matthew and John. I think Luke really learned not only from our Lord, but from St. Paul as well, that the excess of divine mercy is demonstrated or put on display in all of these meal scenes. And the one party that doesn't get it, the Pharisees, you know, there are seven meals right before the Eucharist in Luke's Gospel. The first and the seventh are with tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus. Then the second and the sixth are with Pharisees. And they're just bewildered by this excess of display of compassion. But it's always in the context of a meal. You know, and likewise the parable of the prodigal son, which isn't even numbered among those ten. You have, you know, this killing the fatted calf, as you name one of the chapters there, you know. And the excess of the Father's love you know, but to me, it's sort of, again, the marriage supper. It's the desire for intimacy as well as the desire for that kind of culinary delight yeah. that God has always hardwired into us and then, you know, kind of given us this eschatological trajectory. Like, you have no idea what <laughs> right, I have in right. store for you. Yeah. 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 Well, my old pastor used to say, in a very simplified version, you know, when we eat, when we meet, we eat. You know, he always wanted to have that celebration. I mean, there's something beautiful about it. But as, as Catholics, we're called, you, you've convinced us, I think, that food is good. But why do we fast then? You know, why does the church call us to fast if food is good? Yeah, why aren't we eating the pumpkin bread right now? They're worried about crumbs. 
I think we should be eating more. I think this is what the church is calling us to. Um, And and I I do want to take that up, though, in the next segment. Um, Stay with us uh, for the next segment of Franciscan University Presents. There is a great value to the practice of fasting within the Catholic Church. It goes back to Judaism. The Jews prepared in in fasting in preparation for the Sabbath. Christians inherited that and prepared for the coming of the Sunday, the coming of the Lord at Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. Wednesday and Friday, the day of our Lord's betrayal, the day of our Lord's death. The whole reason for it was a sign of penance and preparation for, for, for Sunday so that we could limit ourselves from the attraction and the hold that food has on us so that we control it and it does not control us. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, We've been talking about faith and food. Uh, This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University's campus. Uh, We're recording right now in the Communication Arts Studio here uh, in Steubenville, Ohio. Our camera and equipment are being uh, operated by our students. Um, Our panelists, our regulars here, our faculty uh, for the university. Um, Emily, we've been talking about food. We've been talking about seeing a sacramental worldview, which is beautiful and, and really um, gives us a clear sense of, of, of the goodness that God has for us, the love He has for us in creating food and bacon in all its glory, right? But um, you talk about in the book about eating with the church. Um, you know, there's fasting and feasting. You know, what, what do you mean by eating with the church? Fasting and feasting is part of it. You okay. know, when you eat with the church, you fast when the church fasts. You feast when the church feasts. The church gives us a calendar for eating. Yes. Uh, so it's calling us to mourn, in a sense, on fast days, to repent, to recognize that we are creatures who are not self-sufficient. You know, we okay. need God. We really yes. have to hunger with Christ. Christ hungered during his lifetime. And when we fast, we hunger with Christ. Fasting adds power to our prayers uh, is one of the messages that comes across in scripture. But then we feast. Yeah. So we're not, we are, you know, we're a joyful church. And on the days when the church is celebrating, there's lots more feast days than fast days, which is one of the great things about being Catholic. Yes. You know, we eat and we eat because as Scott says, you know, the the, all of this, this whole journey, this whole life is pointing to a marriage supper. It's pointing to a yes. feast. So we're feasting in anticipation of the heavenly feast. We're feasting with the saints in heaven. And food is a sign, it teaches us. Mm-hmm. So Father's homily on a feast day is a good way to know that the day is special, but pumpkin cheesecake also <laughs> tells us that the day is special. Yeah. Cinnamon rolls on Easter just reinforce that this is a joyful, happy day. So. Yes. That's part of it, the feasting and the fasting. But it's also just thinking about 
food, the way the church thinks about food, having what I call a Eucharistic approach to eating, where we're always eating with gratitude, mm. always eating with joy, always recognizing food as a sign of God's love and generosity and mercy. Yeah. It, it's a, a real paradox, isn't it? Because on, on the one hand, we can easily understand the fast because we live in a fallen world. We're broken. Uh, uh, the whole earth is our hospital, as Eliot says, endowed by the ruined millionaire. And so we can experience loss and longing. It's the feast, however, that is really more real, even if there's less evidence uh, for it in, in this fallen world, because it's a foretaste of what's coming. That's it's right. the promised paradise on the other side of death, and we long for that. And why shouldn't we have uh, a dress rehearsal That's from right. time to time? I mean, the bridegroom is gone, but he has left certain glints of his glory, and when you break bread together, you remind yourself of those. Yeah. This is what it's all about. You know, I, I do think that there is a Eucharistic illusion embedded in Jesus' somewhat unexpected response to the query that his opponents are raising. You know, John the Baptist and the Pharisees teach their disciples to fast. Why don't you? And then his rhetoric response is sort of like, you know, well, can you expect the wedding guests to fast while the bridegroom is with them? And we're so pious, we're like, amen, you know, the gospel. But it's like, well, no, of course not. But that's not answering the question. Unless Jesus, as the bridegroom, is present and wants to train them to recognize that later on, when you don't see me in the Eucharist, the bridegroom is going to be there. Mm -hmm. Fasting ceases, feasting begins. And it's a Eucharistic illusion. I think that the early church fathers grasped readily and, and deeply. And I think we also recognize that we need to fast before we feast to really be able to feast freely and to enjoy that. And in a certain sense, this whole world, this valley of tears, is one continuous fast because we don't really enter into the joy of the Lord, except, you know, uh, it, it lasts, but then it goes away. Yeah. And so I, I think it trains the heart, you know, to have fasting and feasting. I, I remember Kimberly preparing a Thanksgiving banquet and we had a lot of people over at the house. We do that a lot anyway, even when it's not Thanksgiving. But she was preparing the meal, and I was, of course, nibbling, and she's <laughs> like, don't. I'm like, what do you mean, don't? And she goes, that's part of it. I'm like, okay, I trust her. Uh -huh. And I realized by not nibbling, it was just much more of a feast by the time the right time came. That's so yeah. true. And, you know, uh, We've got all these glorious seasons of the church that take us through this. And I just think as a father, you know, with my kids, the church gives us so many ways to teach and shape our children, whether it be at the homily uh, that knows it's a feast day or by the ways that we celebrate that the family traditions that are often surrounding the dinner table. I mean, for sometimes in our busy lives, that's the time that we get to pray and we're sitting around and, and enjoying this. Uh, meal together, this time together, but, you know, as, as you, you talk about the Eucharistic approach, I mean, Chesterton said, you know, the, 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 what is it, the key to happiness is gratitude, you know, and as we look forward at feasting and fasting with the church and going through this, how does our understanding of food, how does that kind of uh, maybe address some of the, the, you know, we've talked about a lot of the problems, how does a proper understanding of food really address some of the concerns that our culture has, um, as we've just kind of discussed before. Well, it comes back to what we were talking about regarding the sacramental worldview. Yeah. Everything is a sign of something. Everything speaks of God. Every Food is a natural symbol of the Eucharist. Okay. Everything food does on the natural level, it nourishes us, it nurtures us, it draws us together in community, it heals, it comforts, it does all these wonderful things. 
that's what the Eucharist does on a supernatural level. Right. You know, it heals us more than any medicine ever can. It nourishes us with God's own life. Yeah. You know, it comforts us. It binds up our sins and our wounds. It draws, it makes us the body of Christ. You know, when we eat his bread, eat his body and drink his blood, we become his body. We yeah. become one family. So when you, and God didn't, that's not just something I thought up, you know, like, yeah, nor is yes. the Eucharist something that God just thought up, you know, oh, these Israelites, they keep Well, you were, I mean, up. you were sensible enough not to try to improve upon it. <laughs> I was sensible, <laughs> yes. It's I mean, recognizing the, what The, the connection is. between nature and grace is, is I'm, I'm almost tempted to say, quite natural. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's an integrity there uh, between the miracles that Jesus works and the meals that follow. You use the example of, of healing this girl, and then immediately after that, Jesus Jesus reminds the parents, make sure she gets something to eat. I mean, that interest he takes in something uh, so trivial uh, really does uh, 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 strike me as uh, evidence of his goodness. Uh, and you say, this is one of the most stunning sentences, I think, in the book, that for you the most intimate moment is when you have communion with God and you eat God. I mean, if anything would affirm the truth that matter matters, it would be this. He breaks himself to become bread, to become yes. food. I mean, no other religion showcases that at its center. Right, that's what food is, that's food what always, God knew, like, I want you to understand what the Eucharist is doing. I want you to understand how much I love you, how much I'm giving myself to you. So I'm gonna give you this natural symbol that's gonna help you make sense of all of it. And so when you start approaching food that way, when you see it as this gift from God that's supposed to help us understand his self-gift, that's not something you want to abuse. <laughs> that's not something you want to turn into an idol. But it's not something that we just naturally grasp by reason alone. I mean. A counterpoint to Regis, you know, on the one hand, yes, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. On the other hand, it's also a wafer and a sip. You know, it, it reminds me of what Bishop Wright of Pittsburgh said, you know, when he heard people were denying that the Eucharist was a, a sacrifice, that it was only a meal, he, this corpulent prelate said, a meal while it's not even a snack. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know at the natural level, yeah. you call that a banquet? You know, yeah, right. get over it, you know. Yeah. On the other hand, if it is the Lord God Almighty, res re resurrected from the dead, then it goes beyond any meal, any banquet, but only if you see it through the eyes of faith do you recognize a feast and not even a you know, it, It's really almost quite so shocking uh, what, what we're shown because he's the chef. He makes this meal. He's the maitre d'. He gets everybody seated uh, and looks after them. And then he's the meal. He's the cuisine. I mean, what other religion can match that kind of marvel? No, and I don't think you come at, I don't think you start discovering, oh, food is wonderful. Oh, look, there's God. I think it's, right. for me, it was the supernatural vision yeah. that shaped the natural vision. Right. So yep. the church says, this is the body and blood of Christ. Yeah. I believed it with my head. Right. The moment I walked back from communion and it all sank in, like, I am eating God right, right, right. now. Like, yes. I am, the thing that I am afraid of, the thing that I've made an idol is how God, yeah. that's the way God is giving himself yeah. to me. Yes. That supernatural vision changes the natural vision. I mean, Jesus certainly tried <laughs> to get it over to, you know, right. he, fed the, he fed the thousands right. before he gave his teaching on the Eucharist. He was trying right. to prepare right. them, right. but it's really, you need to buy the supernatural first before right. the natural changes. Right. But then, yeah. then you realize 
how everything else matters. Yeah. You know, yeah. the matter matters. And, and, and you are what you eat, right? So, you know, now as we consume Christ, hopefully it's him who is growing. Well, it, it's, so easy to become, it's so easy to become an extremist about Eucharist because like Flannery O'Connor, if it is just a symbol, then you really want to say the hell with it. It has no worth. It has no weight apart from the fact that this is my body. This is my blood. No sane person would sit down uh, and, and, and eat uh, a piece from uh, the fourth gospel. This has to be God himself. He doesn't become paper, he becomes food, and we're invited to eat it. I mean, this is why I have a problem with all Protestant uh, worship, like those Methodists, I mean, giving us grape juice, for God's sake. Who wants to drink that stuff anyway? If it's not <laughs> God's blood, then it's the cheapest wine on the market. Who cares? Bishop Bright is spot on. It's not much of a, of a meal unless it is really the body and blood of God. That's so true. You know, it's also curious to notice that the Pharisees knew how to feast. You know, um, in Luke's Gospel again, the second and the sixth are Pharisees feasting. And yet, it's precisely in that context where Jesus um, heals on the Sabbath, the Sabbath feast hosted by the Pharisees, but he also comments upon how they were all jockeying for positions of honor when they were seated. And, and then he kind of strikingly states that, you know, when you invite when you, throw a, when you host a banquet, don't invite your, your rich neighbors and your family members who will repay you. you know, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And you're thinking, that's so impractical. How will they even know where to sit, <laughs> much less what's being what served? You know? <laughs> right. But then in that final parable there in Luke 14, he describes this king who throws a marriage banquet for his son, and all of these proud people come up with excuses. And so sure enough, the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind are the ones who come in. And I think Jesus is showing us, you know, that when I'm healing at the table on a Sabbath to the Pharisee who's hosting him, you know, you don't recognize how lame, how poor, how blind you are, you know, but we're seated at the table of the king for the Eucharist precisely because we're so poor, we're so blind, we're so lame. And that's why it looks like a wafer, you know, and it's just a sip of, of, of wine, and yet it's something that goes beyond all of our natural sensibilities. Yeah. All right, well, so talking about hosting a banquet, um, you, something you have done exceptionally in your life is, oh, is, yeah. is hospitality. But you talk about it in the book. What's the difference between hospitality and entertaining? Uh, the reason I want to talk about that is because so few people these days are hosting anymore. It's one of the reasons why I stand out. I love having parties. Yes. And I'm like, we bought it. We just bought a new house. And it had to be big enough for me to invite 100 people over for a party. You know, <laughs> uh, But people desperately want to be invited in. But we've got so caught up in the idea of entertaining Martha Stewart and Pinterest. <laughs> and everything must be perfect. And I must have these handmade mason jar chandeliers and <laughs> duck egg caviar. And it, what it is, is it's all about impressing people. So it's yeah. me as the hostess putting on a show and wowing you, the audience, and that is stressful. Yeah. It's very, very right. stressful, and it doesn't give the hostess time to do what she actually needs to do and what is hospitality, and that is loving people. So entertaining is about impressing people. Hospitality, which is what the Bible says all Christians must do, like the widows weren't even going to get taken care of in Acts if they didn't show hospitality. Like, it's about loving people, showing people they matter. So food is the excuse, it's the means. Yes. It's come together and let's have a meal and it's better if it's tasty and if there's plenty of it because people are nicer when they're well fed. <laughs> um, you know, and even nicer if you give them a glass of wine. But uh, 
that's, it's an excuse to love people, to show them they matter, to show them that the hours I spent in the kitchen, yeah. the money I spent at the grocery store, it's for you to show you what God wants you to know, and that is that you are lovable. Yeah. That, that's a beautiful Charity. distinction uh, that you draw, and I think you reproduce the same distinction when you parse the difference between control and care when it comes to the body. If, if you control the body, it, it's as if it's something out there. You manage it. It's a problem I can solve, uh, and it's about power. But if the body is a temple of, of the Holy Spirit, you care for it, you cultivate it, you nurture it, you love it. Uh, it's a gift. It's something precious. And I think you extend that uh, uh, when you offer hospitality to others. And, and doesn't Peter tell us do it without grumbling? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's easy to grumble when these people make a mess, right? I mean, you, you're ultra fastidious. Why can't you clean up? And why can't you finish your beets, for heaven's sake? <laughs> then you get a strip of bacon. I mean, you, you mustn't do that. You've got to be sort of carefree about this. It is. And one of, you know, one of the great joys of your class is when I was here as a graduate student was watching Babette's piece. That was the first time I had yeah. seen it. And yeah. seeing her prepare this lavish, right. over-the-top, magnificent right. banquet for these people who didn't deserve it. Right. I mean, they didn't or bring, or appreciate yeah, yeah. it. They yeah. didn't bring wine. They didn't ask what they could do to help. Yeah. You know, they just were these, they were really just very ungrateful guests. But that didn't stop her from lavishing yeah. this Except for the general who took Except endless delights. <laughs> Stay with us for the final segment <laughs> of Franciscan Preserve. <laughs> One of the ways in which I feel that we can demonstrate hospitality and show Jesus' love to others is through food. And one such way that I do that in my personal life is through coordinating a monthly potluck dinner that is usually centered around a religious theme based on an upcoming feast day or the time of the year. And um, it's really nice to gather with friends around the dining room table and provide the food and see what others have brought in terms of preparing the meal, putting the love into the meal, talking with each other, fellowship, uh, creating that sense of community with each other. Another way that I feel that food can demonstrate Christ's love to others is through the use of a meal train. And what that is, is we have families in need who would benefit from having meals delivered to them, whether it's for medical reasons, a new baby, arriving to town. And so local families are able to provide, sign up and provide these meals for these families. One way that I personally benefited from this was when I had my daughter and we had complications. And so for a month, I didn't have to worry about preparing meals for my family because other people were sharing Christ's love through the meals that they prepared for us. I am a communication arts major, the president of film club, and an editor for Franciscan University Presents. It's really great to be able to work on Franciscan University Presents because it is a national television show on EWTN. And in a lot of other schools, you're not going to have that kind of ability to put that on a resume. When I graduate, I know that I'm going to, to be firm in sticking with my faith and you know going to daily mass and a frequent confession and things like that. Because instead of just learning with my mind or just focusing on schoolwork, I, I actually you know can grow with my whole person. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Uh, we've been talking about faith and food. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? 
<laughs> yeah, I don't want to take up too much time, okay, <laughs> because uh, uh, otherwise I co-opt uh, this uh, promised meal at the end, <laughs> and that's far more compelling than any boring uh, discourse I might make. But I, I, I'd be very remiss if I didn't say, what a wonderful guest uh, you have been, what a delightful book you have written, and what a delicious witness uh, you are to the life of both faith and food, and the connections uh, uh, you argue with, with such uh, clarity and charm uh, and, and, and conviction. Uh, at least as appetizing as the food you make, uh, I think, are the positions that you've staked out uh, in defense of faith uh, and food. And you have a perspective. I mean, you haven't lost your mind, uh, your, your balance, your reason when it comes to, uh, to cooking. Uh, John of the Cross tells us that in the end of our life, we are judged on love. Uh, and you remind us that it's not your waistline, it's not the weight that God will measure. It's the amount of love that you have shown. And, and it's so moving that you show this love uh, when you cook. And your husband is a very lucky guy <laughs> to be the beneficiary of, of all of this uh, food. Uh, you know, P.G. Woodhouse speaks of a feast of reason and a banquet of wit. And I think that's what uh, you've given us today. Uh, and in that lovely book, which is so sensuous uh, to hold, it's, it's like eating a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It is. Yeah. Maybe a steak. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I am so grateful for this book, but I'm also mm. grateful and proud as the editor-in-chief of Emmaus Road. It's one of the side pursuits, you know, to have published this. But even more, I'm also grateful for being a neighbor of yours for so many years and witnessing the hospitality that you've shown for more than a decade, literally to hundreds of people. You know, uh, a meal is what a, makes a family, and yet a family can be enclosed. It can be a closed circle. And hospitality is the way you open that circle up. And I noticed over the years that you invited many people. Some were married, but a lot were single. The people, I think, in some ways, who are the most prone to feel isolated. Yeah. And so even before you got married and now after you are, uh, it is such a, a singular display of the truth that is so not merely theoretical. You know, it really is concrete. And uh, I am grateful especially for chapter 10 killing the fatted calf, the gift of hospitality, where you take the divine and humanize it by showing how it is that we don't just entertain, we really do host, we show care and all of those things. But these are very helpful tips. And you know, as I'm reading, I'm kind of winking because you know, Kimberly has done this for us for nearly 40 years. And uh, the experience of grace that I had long before I became a Catholic, precisely in that hospitality, is what I'm sure what opened my mind as well as my heart to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is going to be a feast for many, many people and open them up to the amazing hospitality of God. Thank you for writing this. Yeah. Yeah. Emily. Well, I guess touching off of what Scott said, we live in such a lonely culture. Mm. You know, whether people are married, whether they're single, whether they've just moved to town and they're new, there are so many people who are longing for friendship, who are longing for a dinner invitation. And when we let our own fears that we have to impress people or they're gonna not wanna eat with all of our little children or all the best we can offer them is spaghetti and meatballs or macaroni and cheese or pizza, you know, that stops us from welcoming people, from loving people, from inviting them in. So I would just encourage people to not 
worry. I mean, the first several years, probably the first two years that I would lived in the house that I'm in now, it was under constant construction. You know, we, <laughs> we ate amidst the drywall dust on a stove, and I had a stove that had three working burners. <laughs> and people came. I mean, there were 25 people there every week. It didn't matter how simple the dinner was. It didn't matter. I was like, all right, guys, we're in the basement, everybody, tonight. <laughs> you know, find a seat someplace. People want to be invited. They want to be loved. They're not going to worry about how clean your house is. I mean, mm. it's good to have a place for them to sit, you know, right. so <laughs> clear off the sofa if that's what needs to happen. But just let people in. And when you let them in, you are blessed in ways you can't imagine. How, that's how I met my best friend. She was a random spouse of a random guy in my class. And I knew they were lonely. I was like, come to one of our dinners. And God gave me my very best friend through that. And so that was a huge gift for me. So it's not just you blessing other people, you showing love, it's you receiving. Because as much as you give, as much as you cook for people and invite them in, God will bless you a hundredfold times that. And then I guess the last thing I would say is just not to take it all too seriously. Yeah. It's food. There, you know, there's babies to kiss and houses <laughs> to renovate and books to read and just to not fret too much about it, not to make food more. Don't make it less than what it is, but don't make it more than what it is. Receive it as the gift, rejoice in it, and then, you know, go kiss somebody that you love. <laughs> Very good advice. Yes. Well, if you've enjoyed today's program, uh, we have a handout for you uh, just for asking or going to faithandreason.com. Uh, it's a great um, kind of article blog post from Emily, uh, The Theology of Food. Sometimes you just need to eat the cheesecake and other important truths about <laughs> food. Uh, it's always appealing, you know, to, to have your titles. This book, if you, if you have to buy or if, if, you, if you can, go and buy this book. It is, it is really a tremendous uh, opportunity for you to go deeper into the thing that we all share in common. We we all need food, but I really see this as an opportunity to evangelize. Uh, Scott and uh, Emily, we all talked about the, the occasion to bring people into your home, to bring them into your heart. Um, and so when you open your home, and no matter how simple, uh, how, how mundane it might seem, uh, it's an invitation to bring someone into your home and see the light of Christ in your cooking or in your little simple offerings, whatever it might be. Um, these are the occasions that we need to make the evangelization real, uh, to make it tangible. And our food, uh, we really are what we eat, so our food <laughs> reflects uh, who we are, but ultimately it comes down to the Eucharist. Um, all this food is drawing us deeper into the reality um, of the, the church's greatest offering, the offering of Christ uh, in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Um, and so I, I want to invite you to be more a part of Franciscan University's mission. Um, we, our mission is to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples. Maybe you can come here to be on our campus here in Steubenville, Ohio, to get your degree, to be more equipped uh, to be a part of, of the great work of God, or through our online programs. Or maybe you can join us in, in one of our pilgrimages to holy shrines around the world, or to some of our dynamic summer conferences. Uh, or visit us at faithandreason.com for videos, uh, articles, uh, things that will, will truly equip you for the new evangelization. I know we have stuff from Emily and many others up there at faithandreason.com. Uh, and until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. But for us, I think it's time for us to eat. Enjoy. <laughs> Emily, thank you for bringing Grandma Miller's uh, pumpkin. Thank uh, you. Yes, the recipe's in the book. So Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so get the book. <laughs> Thanks. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. 
At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.